This is KVRX 91.7 Austin, and you are listening to Dialectica, an examination of the civic, political, and economic issues that matter to us all on global, national, and local levels. Dialectica is brought to you by students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs and is produced in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. We hope you enjoy the show. Today we're interviewing Ed McGaw, my father, and he was born on Pine Ridge Reservation, South Dakota, in 1936, and he was a 19-year Marine in both Korea and Vietnam. He got his JD, and he went on to help pass the Freedom of Religion Act in 1978, not directly, but um, in a roundabout way, and uh, he also is author of nine books. Uh, one of which is over 40 times reprinted, HarperCollins. And um, today he's here to talk to us about um, basically the, the Sioux, but in particular the Oglala Lakota, uh, which is the second largest reservation uh, in the United States. Um, they've retained a lot of their, their culture, their spirituality, and uh, my father is, is, is with us today to talk about that. I am an Oglala Lakota I was in the Marine Corps for 20 years, and um, as it, as you said, uh, Korea as a young Marine corporal, and I flew F-4 Phantoms in Vietnam. I flew 110 combat missions. But my main uh, topic is the Sioux Indian people, and basically the North American Indian. His uh, con- contributions to dominant society that have been very overlooked and uh, the great gifts that he gave to the world. Uh, My background also was strongly influenced by six times in the annual Sundance held on my reservation. The audience probably has seen movies of the native warriors at Sundance, and it's quite an enduring ceremony. For four days, you do not eat anything, you do not drink any water. And basically, it's a Thanksgiving ceremony, a Thanksgiving to the Great Spirit, and the crowd gathers around for four days to watch and to thank the our concept of a Creator for all that Creator has given us. And I think that the uh, students at the University of Texas, it won't hurt you to know about Indian people. The Sioux are a little bit more gregarious than many tribes. Uh, we're pretty well known for our humor. We're pretty well known for our openness. And a lot of Indians, I'm sure, uh, are pretty uh, closed. Uh, Sioux are much more wide open, and I just it's our nature. So let us start with democracy. Democracy came from the Iroquois people. We were uh, in the Iroquois area, on the uh, north eastern coastal Piedmont area. We came out of Carolina, and a large tribe. We migrated in the 1600s, starting. Uh, westward because of the tremendous amount of diseases that were killing off the tribes. And we watched that. We knew that there was nothing we could do about it. We said, you talk to a white man, you trade with him, and uh, within a moon you could be dead. So we left there and we were led to an early migration westward into Miniata, that's Minnesota, Miniwata, a lot of Atta, and then onward to the Dakotas, and then the Dakotas, Nebraska, 
that was our heyday. That's where we became uh, quite well known as the Fighting Sioux. Uh, a little bit on agriculture. The, uh, as I mentioned, democracy, the freedom of speech, freedom of uh, a public assembly, freedom of elected leadership. There was even suffrage back in our day, way before the pilgrims landed. The Iroquoian women voted. The word caucus is an Iroquoian word, a special meeting for usually to oust the chief if he's not doing his job. Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine saw all this when they went to when they went to woo the Iroquois over to the Indian side. We Iroquois were fighting for the British, and they were miffed because the British did not honor them and they went neutral. And they discovered all these freedoms. The pilgrims knew absolutely nothing about the freedoms that I just mentioned. And they copied this, these uh, great discoveries on into the Constitution. But we have to thank our Iroquois brethren, whom we uh, learned our democracy from, and they, they set the example for us. We copied their uh, democratic style. Well, let us go on and just mention agriculture, corn, beans, potatoes. Those were the three staple foods that were never in Europe. And the European was much smaller when he came here. He did not have those foods. We had a, a very strong meat, meat, meat diet, fish diet. Consequently, we were quite a bit larger than the European in the early 1600s and 1700s. After the Europeans started eating our foods, they did get larger, get bigger. And uh, in the museums in England and Germany, you'll see the uh, knight's armor is very small, about five foot three, five foot four was your average knight. If you take a look at your Civil War uniforms, their bunks, they're much, much smaller than today's people. And you can thank that to diet. So those are the great agricultural gifts that the um, Indian people gave to the world. Democracy, I think, is man's greatest gift to a fellow man. Or at least, uh, at least like the abundance of it, right? Where, where they obviously they had protein in Europe, but like you, like you've said that you know a lot of the a lot of the forests were royal forests, and peasants were in no way allowed to hunt the king's meat or the royal meat. Whereas in America, it was just it was everywhere, and it was no one readily available. Forest. Yeah, no one owned it. It was, it was like the ocean. You could mm -hmm. hunt in the forest. There was bountiful was deer. There was even a forest bison, elk, turkey. Uh, abundant food and which we uh, had for thousands of years. We kept the land pristine. We did not overpopulate it. As Kyle says, uh, the king's forest, you would get your fingers cut off, your bow fingers, if you were caught in there hunting, trying to provide food for your uh, family. So consequently, uh, the European missed out on a meat, meat, meat diet. Uh, we were a large tribe. We migrated eastward in the 1600s. Eventually, we had an 8-to-1 kill ratio over the United States Army. Many of you have seen pictures of the famous Battle of the Little Bighorn in which Colonel Custer went to his demise at the hands of Sioux warriors. He foolishly attacked a larger band, a larger grouping of Indian people, and he had uh, many, many shortcomings, which the Army in those days had for their troops. For one thing, they were smaller. They were fighting bigger men. We had the Winchester. The Army never had the Winchester. And I know this is hard to believe, 
but the corruption and collusion of the Springfield Arms Company lobbied con Congress and the War Department and kept the Winchester, which was invented in 1858 by a man named Henry, and kept the Winchester out of Army hands. Even in the Civil War, the Army did not have the Winchester except for one colonel of a battalion held off an entire division with the Winchester that he had hocked his farm to buy for his troops and ammunition, and it proved how uh, more effective it was, and yet the Army never bought it due to the lobbying concepts, sort of like Halliburton is nowadays. They have a control over the uh, situation in Iraq, construction, etc., and the other companies cannot get in. Well, the collusion was rampant back in Civil War days just as well. It was to our advantage, however, because if the Army had the Winchester, had the Army trained their horses like we did, and rode our style with both hands free, the Army had a bit in their horse's mouth, they had only one hand free to fight with. We rode Mongolian style, uh, with our knees we guided our horse, both hands were free, and consequently we had an 8 to 1 kill ratio. Eventually we were outnumbered, but when they call the fighting Sioux that, that is exactly what they were. What was it with um, the the armies or the soldiers' horses? Remember how they were they were very they, they were not trained. They were very gun shy. Um, why why what were some other reasons why the Sioux had advantages over the, the, All right. the soldiers? The horse was the main reason why I probably won all those early battles. Number one. Our horses were trained uh, as the warrior was trained. They were trained to go without water. They were trained to go without eating and yet be effective. They were conditioned horses. Our youth, our youth clamored to ride the warrior's horses two and three times a day. They would be ridden hard, and the horse wanted to be ridden hard. Therefore, it was an exceptional, exceptional shape. Uh, versus the army horses that had to stay in the stockade and were not exercised because every time they did come out of the stockade we would usually be waiting and uh, chase them back into the uh, stockade. So consequently the horses played out very very soon and as I said earlier we rode our horses with our knees both hands were free to hold that Winchester or a sharp single shot and which we captured weapons after weapons from the army because when we fought them hand-to-hand, -hand, obviously they lost if we won the Treaty of 1868. And they were usually laden down with water, food, uh, ammunition, and of course the cavalryman's uh, single-action rifle. And we were well, well armed, firearmed, at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, which took place in 1876, eight years after the signing of the Treaty of 1868. The horse was a major reason why we won. I think it's interesting to point out too, I, I, I remember you mentioned before that um, another reason why the, a lot of the, 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 uh, the Army's horses were um, very ineffective is because oftentimes the Army wouldn't hunt from their horses. Right. And so when they would hear their gunshots for the first time, right. they would often buck their riders. The scouts provided the meat for the Army. There's plenty of buffalo in those days. The Sioux warriors used their horses to hunt the buffalo, therefore they got used to gunfire. In fact, the would often have a young person have a string of new horses that they had captured from the army or new ones that were coming up to be ridden. They would trail them right into the buffalo herds on a, on a, on a rope, 
and they would be riding just on the opposite side of the warriors that were shooting the buffalo, and hearing this gunfire and all the thundering hoofs and the action, the horses got very used to it. Of course, it was a quick way to learn because the other horses were all involved, and, and this conditioned uh, the horses, whereas the army did not have this method. A lot of their horses, when they first became exposed to gunfire, they would throw the riders, and consequently we would wind up with more horses. Also, our children would have a lot of play fights, and these horses would be jostling against each other almost daily, and they were used to uh, the uh, playing of with by the children, and of course when the buffalo hunts, the gunfire, so there it, it, it readily made them into a very, very effective uh, war horse. We all heard about the Battle of the Little Bighorn, which took place in July of 76, but what about the battle that no one ever heard of, and that was the Rosebud Creek Battle, about 10 days before the Battle of Little Bighorn, in which the Army General, General Crook, was coming up from the south. He was going to meet up with Terry, General Terry, coming from North Dakota area, and Colonel Gibbons coming down from Montana. A three-pronged attempt, the last final drive, to eradicate the Sioux from the plains. But the Indians knew about the approaching General Crook, and lo and behold, they had time to get ready. Red Crazy Horse was selected as the leader. He was chastised by Chief Sitting Bull for only having uh, less than 700 men against a force of 1,400 and more by General Crooks. He said, you have less than half the men, Sitting Bull said to Chief Crazy Horse. What are you doing? You should take more. Crazy Horse laughed, and he made the motions of clicking the bottom lever of a Winchester, and he made motions with his legs and his body as though he were riding a horse. And he was aiming the Winchester and cocking it, and he laughed and said, I have plenty of men. I do not waste my men. We will come back victorious. Do not worry about it. Very, very confident. Rode off, and history shows it. General Crook was badly mauled at the Battle of the Rosebud. He had a horse shot out from underneath him. It was a two-day battle, and the Army turned and ran back to Fort Laramie, where they come from, obviously very well defeated. We never hear about that battle. And here was a force of Sioux, less than half as strong, and dispatched a much larger force. History in those days did not want to show any of the uh, better betterment of the white man's army by uh, uh, Indian people, and it's consequently pretty much that way yet to this day. So that was a great battle that very few people know about. Our last major battle was, of course, the General Colonel Custer foolishly coming hitting in the camp of the Sioux, split his forces. Reno was at across the bottom end of this campsite across the river. He did cross the Little Bighorn River, shoot into the, some tents, and then realized what a large force he was facing. And the Indians had their guns right beside their tents. They picked up their guns. A lot of them were Winchesters, and a volley of fire drove Reno back, and Reno lost about half his men trying to get back across the Bighorn, and made those that made it to the safety of the huge cottonwood trees on the opposite bank of the Little Bighorn, they were, uh, reached safety, and they, they went back 
and uh, we're joined up by uh, Captain Benteen, who had a pack load of horses and ammunition. They hold up there in a very effective um, position, and the Sioux left them there for all night while they held a tremendous victory dance when they celebrated the vanquishing of Custer, who was at the opposite end of the camp and uh, who was dispatched very, very quickly. When he came into the camp and hardly fired a shot, he turned and ran backwards. His horses were so tired that some of the Sioux on foot actually ran down those tired horses and dispatched the troopers on, on board their uh, horses. And Custer was dispatched in a matter of minutes, and uh, they were all killed. The Indians did not scalp them. Of course, they took their clothes and, and took what horses they, they had that were still alive. And then they had a huge victory dance, but they knew that the, it was the, they were going to have to go to the reservation eventually, and that's exactly what happened. We were herded on to the reservations, and then uh, later, the battle of, was not the Battle of Unity, the Wounded Knee Massacre occurred in which Chief Bigfoot was surrounded by Army troops under a flag of truce. He was kept overnight, and the next morning they came in, and a gunfire, one shot was fired, and gunfire erupted from both sides, and that's called the Wounded Knee Massacre of 1890. That was the last uh, firefight, major firefight, that the Sioux had with the Army, and, and it was all over with in a very short time. So many people know about Wounded Knee. That's our history of the Sioux, and now we have moved forward. What What was it like um, going back on to the reservations? What were some of the spiritual leaders even before the reservations happened, and what was that entire transition like? It was terrible. The Sioux had a belief system. They believed in a creator, much like the Jewish people. The Jewish people have a Yahweh concept in which they believe in a higher force, a higher form, we believe in a creator, and we believe that creator was all truthful and wanted us to be all truthful because we believe the spirit world lies beyond that only the truthful people will advance into that realm uh, comfortably. And we, feel, we believe that it's a place of knowledge that beyond, but you have to prepare yourself here while you're here. And the more truthful you become, the more you will fit into that beyond world. Well, this all just disappeared when we were herded onto the reservation. We, our sweat lodge ceremonies, our Sundance ceremonies, all these are simple beseechment ceremonies to the ultimate, to the Creator. These were forbidden by the U.S. government, unconstitutionally, of course, because we're, you're supposed to have, uh, uh, the government cannot create a religion and it cannot put one down. And yet they did on ours, they banned our religion, and it was very, very hopeless for us. Uh, a, an insane asylum was built, federal insane asylum, in which our holy men were incarcerated, and that's the federal insane asylum at Canton, South Dakota, which was torn down just before World War II and was built in the early, early 1900s, but primarily to incarcerate our medicine people uh, and then, uh, then actual, actually insane people. They were considered insane by a Christian lobbyist, the overzealous Christian lobbyist, who wanted to, wanted to get on our reservation, get land, and of course save us. And of course many of your Indian tribes have gone this direction. But the Sioux are very resistant. I would say over half of the Sioux people still believe 
in the old traditional ways, and now we're free to have our Sundances. We're free to have our sweat lodges. We're free to believe in the Great Spirit our way. And many, it's, it's our youth that are going back. And uh, there's a tremendous revival amongst uh, our people. We have but one commandment, and uh, whereas a white man has ten, ten commandments. Our one commandment is to learn, live, and follow what Creator demonstrates daily. Learn, live, follow what you observe from nature. Creator made nature. Therefore, it's the most direct representation of Creator if you have the brains enough to look for it. So this was all taken away from us. We call it the natural way. And uh, we went into a very state of shock, if you want to put it. We could not speak our language. Our children were taken from us. They all went to boarding school. Can you imagine yourself being sent away at the age of six to a nine-month school that uh, forbid you from being what you were and what you are, what you really are, and never really will be anything else? That you're Indian, you're Indian to the core, and yet all of this was systematically. Uh, set out to be destroyed by overzealous governmental people hand-in-hand hand with religious zealots. In fact, there were missionary schools from grade school all the way up to high school on our reservations. What has happened since then? Well, thanks to Martin Luther King, a new awakening has come to this land, and such a word as civil rights. And we Indian people we could go in the military, we could drink from drinking fountains, we didn't have separate bus stations, but we could not have our religion. So that was our clamor after the Martin Luther King days. We want our religion back. We want our religion back. This is where I played a role. I was a young law student uh, in, just come back from Vietnam, from being a fighter pilot, flew 110 combat missions at the control of an F-4B Phantom. And I was sort of a firebrand amongst other firebrands. Russell Means, Belcourts, the AIM people. We all wanted our rights and we wanted our, especially we wanted our ceremonies, our language, and our religion back. My cause was to help the medicine men reestablish the Sundance. The Sundance was a symbol of our return. And we were blocked by our own people. We were blocked by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And finally, the unconstitutional ban was removed. And the Freedom of Religion Act of 1978 was passed. And lo, we are now allowed legally to have a Sundance, to do a sweat lodge. We still believe in an ultimate. We believe in Wakantanka, great spirit, great holy. We do not try to define who, what exactly Great Spirit is. We think of this ultimate power as a maker, it's a creator, and it made at least our universe, our planet, and the revolving around the, the heat factor, the sun. That's all made by this gigantic force out there, and yet we think that the gigantic force has some interest in us somewhat because in our ceremonies, we seem to get symbolic uh, notification 
that this ultimate force does know what we're doing. Uh, for one uh, example, we had a Sundance and a lone cloud came out of the clear, clear blue and right at the height of the ceremony, this cloud was above us and was raining lightly on our Sundancers below. We see this as Creator's acknowledgement that uh, it's okay for us to go back to our old ways. Uh, we believe there's a very powerful book called Black Elk Speaks. Many, some listeners have probably read it. Um, I mentioned in all my last major spiritual book is Creator's Code, Mother Earth Spirituality. I don't think I've ever written a Native American book without thoroughly explaining Black Elk's vision in which he went up to the spirit world and there were the six powers of the universe. And that was the four directions, Weajata, uh, the north power, Weohiapata is the east power, Etokaga is the south power, and Weopeata is the west power. These are actual forces that are on our earth and they uh, manipulate with us daily. The cold giant from the north puts the earth mother asleep. The east power, the red dawn, comes across, brings us knowledge every day if we have the intelligence to look for it. The sun goes down, we owe piata, it goes down, rest is a symbol of the west power. Uh, and I think I'm leaving out one, Itokaga, the south power, is the generator of growth. The sun gets higher and higher in the sky, and lo, spring comes, flowers bloom, little seeds rise, and we live again. Annual cycle that this great ultimate has made for us. Red, white, black, and yellow are the four colors. Red, east, yellow, south, black, west, white, north. In Black Elk's vision. There's two other flowers in this Tatetop of the four directions which I just explained. And they are called the six powers of the universe. Shakpe, Uye. And the other two powers are Earth Mother, naturally, Inamaka, and Father Sky. Ate is, is our father and Wakpia would be Father Sky. Father Sky and Mother Earth have daily communion. We, you say, well, that's animalistic. And all, the white man has all kinds of terms for our ways, which does not explain whatsoever. We simply are telling you about the six powers of the universe that govern us, that we are dependent upon, and of course, the ultimate power, the seventh power, is above all of this, and that's of course, is the Great Spirit. So that is our basic belief system, and we have sweat lodge, in which we cleanse ourselves before we go into a Sundance. And a sweat lodge is a very powerful ceremony. You beseech the four directions in there, and you come out very clean and very, very refreshed. And sweat lodges have been held, even the Romans had them uh, thousands of years ago. It's, it's a very universal ceremony. And of course, our annual coming together in the old days is when the tribe would gather to thank Creator always in a major... Your thanksgiving did not come from the pilgrims. It came from Indian tribes in the East Coast. The pilgrims observed this and thought, wow, that's a nice, a good idea to annually thank Great Spirit in a, in a, uh, a, a ceremony of, of offering of food. And that is where your thanksgiving come from. But of course, the white newspapers are not about to mention that. Uh, because they don't know. History has covered up all of the beautiful, wonderful, good things that the Indian gave to the world and still has a lot of wisdom there to impart. For one thing, to teach you about truth. You don't cover up the truth. You don't hide the truth. You don't slant the truth. The Great Spirit shows you that Creator is all truth. 
If you learn to be more truthful, you then learn more to be like Creator. And we have our own spirit world, thankfully, that which we will go to. I want to go to my own, you can go to yours. And uh, in my spirit world, you advance according to the truth that you have followed while you were here. So we're very, very happy to be going back to those ways. Ho, catch you to hello. Dialectica has been brought to you by the students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. Sources for our show can be found on our website, which can be accessed through kbrx.org. Any opinions offered on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the University of Texas, or KBRX Student Radio. Thank you to our producers and our guests, and remember, you are listening to KBRX Austin.